0: He's finest in Louisiana transplant, Larry Hewitt. Uh, I thank you, Bruce and Mark, and all of you for coming. It's a wonderful turnout. It's it's great to see so many relatives, so many friends, and, and a few people who danced our wedding. Um, see if I can get this a little better. Uh, now and Bruce is getting a little older now some others among us we, we're not aging but you know, I, actually I met my wife about right where my, my nephew is Rick Doolittle and I also proposed in that site a couple of years later This, we talk about progress in this country this used to be a wonderful bar it was a wonderful bar they had great food for free back in the day when you to celebrate happy hour but no more <laughs> you know, it's all gone. But I met my lovely wife in this room in May of 1992. And I wish Marvin Sanderman was here, who kind of sort of at least took credit for Brandon about and had a lot to do with Brandon about. But no matter. Again, I welcome you all. It, it, it is wonderful to see so many old friends and new relatives. Uh, Usually when I address an audience, I have two purposes in mind. One is to make them think, and the second is to teach them something, even if it has nothing to do with whatever I'm talking about. (laughs) And tonight, I'm going to expand upon my repertoire to match my bow tie. Now, for those of you, no one has known me this long in this room. I haven't had a bow tie on since I was about five. And I wasn't smart enough to figure out on YouTube how to tie this one myself. But in any case, matching the new tie and the occasion, uh, I've added a couple of things to my presentation. One is we need a little more humor. And two, we're going to have to add a couple of personal anecdotes in honor of the occasion as well as the group. Now, I was familiar with Douglas Southall Freeman by the age of 12. And I see we have a wonderful member back here who is only 14. God bless his soul. We need more members under 20 or 30, or 40, you know, (laughs) but no matter. My favorite book was Freeman's Lee's Lieutenants. It was my favorite before I was by the time I was 12, and it is still my favorite. I learned of Alan Nevins when I was 20. His his volume, The Gateway to History, was a textbook for the hardest history course at the University of Kentucky when I attended there. Now, I first learned of the Nevins Freeman Award two years later, during my first visit to the home of the 1976 recipient of that award, T. Harry Williams. Now, I was his newest graduate student at the time, and so I got to his house early. I didn't get to be on time, you know, and I knew my place. But I was so early, I was the first to arrive, so I got a little tour since I had never been there. And Harry, of course, as all good Southern hosts do, had a bar. But over the bar was his, and I quote him, glory wall. Now the glory wall was about as long as six of those glass panels. And it was filled from floor to ceiling with his glory. And I tell this story because the first award that he pointed out to me on that glory wall, which was a very prestigious wall, was the Nevin Freeman Award. And that's the first time I heard of it. Now he moved on from there to point out his Pulitzer Prize and his National Book Award and even the Harry S. Truman Award from some round table out in you know, west of here somewhere. <laughs> some guy off of Forsaken Cornfield. But it was interesting, and I of course had no idea what you know, I was learning at the time, but Harry, the first award on this wall that it included a Pulitzer Prize and a National Book Award was the Nevins Freeman Award from the Chicago Civil Roundtable. It was also at T. Harry's house that I met the yet-to-be 1980 recipient of the Nevin Freeman Award, Ed Bars. See, I knew him before he was anybody, <laughs> although I don't look old enough to, 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 to be that well acquainted with the man. And everybody has an Ed Barr story, and I have three or four or five, but I want to share one with you because I think it is appropriate for this evening. Now, this is like 1976, and I'm still Harry's junior graduate assistant, PhD student, so I knew my place. And so when I got this house on Ramble Table night, and Harry was a great professor, he treated his students better than he treated his colleagues. And he would have us over for the... On the evenings that the Badrich Memorial Roundtable would meet, he would host the speaker at his house, and have us all over for cocktail hour before the meeting. And his, and his students and Harry footed the bill. And I was fortunate enough to, to get there. I was, as I was his last PhD candidate, I got moved into the system early, but I was there for a night with Ed Bars. But I knew my place, so I'm in the kitchen helping Mrs. Williams with the hors d'oeuvres. And as we're leaning over the counter, and she's looking through the pass through between the kitchen and the the little breakfast room where Harry was with the rest of the people, the boys and Ed, Estelle Williams, a wonderfully gracious southern lady, leans over and says, Larry, that man, and she's looking at Ed, is the only person I have ever known Harry to be in awe of. Now, for those of you who never met Harry, you wouldn't appreciate that. But for those of you who knew Harry, many believe that the T and T Harry stood for THE <laughs> Harry Wiggins. Not Thomas, but THE Harry Wiggins. The only person, and she'd been marrying him for, at that time, 30 years, the only person she had ever seen him in the home of was Ed Bars. So that made an impression with me, as Ed did with Harry. Now, in addition to Harry, I studied with the 2,000 recipient of the Nevin Spring Award, Charles P. Rowland. I was classmates in college with two other recipients, co-edited a book with another, contributed to books edited by three others, and of the 39 previous recipients, 14 have contributed to my anthologies, so I have been blessed. Uh, well, I will add here that one, Bell Wiley, his unexpected death, led me to my first appearance before a Civil War roundtable because he died unexpectedly and they were scrambling for someone to fill the spot. So, uh, to him, I owe my first presentation to a Civil War roundtable. And of all these, they don't include several friends, including 2003 recipient Jerry Russell whose son I taught how to not drink. <laughs> Troy, I promise I'll be there for you when the time comes. <laughs> Troy, both my nephew and my godson. Now, tonight, I'm describing or defining myth to be something that people wrongly believe to be true. And I think, keep that in mind. Something that people wrongly believe to be true. The myth makers are either supposed eyewitnesses are historians writing after the fact. And it is the job of those historians to ferret out the truth and expose the lives of the eyewitnesses. But sometimes these historians find a story that is just too good not to we tell. Sometimes the story is misled by the available evidence. Worse still, some so called historians make up the facts. And occasionally, even the best historian makes an honest mistake. I've made at least one myself. Oh, 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 wait, wait, we we'll do something wrong here. I had a terrible disaster last night. So, what happened here, at Bruce? We went to slide two and died. I say that because my slideshow, which was televised on Wisconsin TV last night, died the, the slide before last. And it was like, there goes the punchline. So we're going to try. There we go. Myth and myth and myth makers. And we're going to go. One. Oh, oh wait. Got, wait, wait. Oh, there we go. Thank you. Wow, man. It's faster than the fastest gun in the West. Joseph Goebbels observed that if a lie is repeated often enough, it becomes the truth. He had nothing on many Civil War veterans. Now allow me to point out an honest mistake by the renowned Ed Bars. And I love Ed for a lot of reasons, a few stories I won't share. But in the Vicksburg campaign, Bars mentions a Confederate battery commander named Captain Calvin as both John and J.J., But his source in the official records only states J.J. Eighteen years later, in his book on Champion Hill, Tim Smith mentions Captain John J. Cowan and cites the same page in the official records that Ed did. Now, the fellow's name was James Jones Cowan, and he went by Jim. I can't say how Ed... Came up with John for Cowan's first name, but I am confident that Tim Smith got John from it. Now, unknowingly, these same two authors have perpetuated another mistake, one that is not quite as trivial, and one that in which Tim is as guilty as it. And these concern the death of Lloyd Tillman, for which there is a wonderful monument at Vicksburg. Tillman died at Champion Hill. Both Ed and Tim used an 1893 eyewitness account by an FWM. Now, we have a few police officers with us tonight. Anybody that claims to be an eyewitness to something and only gives their initials, you should question really closely. (laughs) But FWM readies this account in the Confederate Veteran Magazine. Now, back in the day, it was not uncommon for veterans to challenge their comrades, former previous comrades in arms, either opponents or on the same side, to what they're saying after the war. And this happened in the case of FWM. E.T. Eagleston's, oh, I'm sorry, Eagleson's response appeared in the very next issue of oh, Confederate Veteran. Now, along with Mark Kunis and Tom Schott, I am editing a forthcoming buy-in of Eggleston's diaries. Now, in the course of doing that, I discovered that Eggleston left an eyewitness account of Tillman's death. It didn't quite jive with FWM, (coughs) and so I had to figure out, well, you know who's telling the truth here. Well, I discovered that FWM was a fellow, guy named the 1st Lieutenant F. W. Marin of a different company. And Marin had been ordered to the rear over four hours before Tillman was killed. Not an eyewitness. Consequently, his is not the best eyewitness account of Tillman's death, even though it has become universally accepted as such. Ah, misleading evidence. And we come to Brigadier General John Roan. Uh, he's the one on the lower right. John Roan, according to the official records, the government endorsed documents, John Roan accompanied Major General Earl Van Dorn from Arkansas to Mississippi in the spring of 1862, where Roan remained for at least two months commanding the brigade during the Siege of Corinth. The truth is that Van Dorn left Roan in charge in Arkansas. A responsibility that Roan held until he was relieved by Major General Thomas Hyman. Official records say one thing, the truth is something different. Bruce Allardyce got it right. And more Confederate generals, the first of the two of us, and maybe the only of the two of us ever to have done so. My family doesn't recognize this gentleman, but some of you other members of the audience will. Nearly 20 years ago, Marshall Crowley, who I met before I ever came to Chicago, before I ever met my lovely wife, we met at Gettysburg. Where there's a book. In any case. Marshall Crawley kind of pulled a trick on me. He asked me to find the source of the conversation between Robert E. Lee and Jeb Stewart on the afternoon of July second, 1863. I know Marshall better now, so I wouldn't fall for it, but I fell for it then. I didn't realize he was testing me. Now, after failing to find an account of this conversation in any of the memoirs or letters or whatever left by Lee's staff officers, I decided I would reverse research it. And so I started with Douglas Southall, Freeman's, Lee's lieutenants. I mean, Freeman knew everything. It's all in the book, even if there's three volumes to it. So, Freeman quotes a guy named Thomason. Now, John Thomason published a biography of Jeb Stewart in 1934, in which he wrote, quote, Well, General Stewart, you are here at last says Lee, austerely. Okay? This is the source. 1934. Conversation took place in
1: 1863.
0: (laughs) Now, what appeared ten years later in Freeman's Lee's lieutenants, however, was quote, the tradition is that Lee said, well, General Stewart, you are here at last. Now, in 1957, Burke Davis wrote in Jeb Stewart, Lee reddened at sight of Stewart and raised his arm as if he would strike him. General Stewart, where have you been? Davis's fabrication failed to catch on, thank God. Even, and so, but Thomas's rose even stronger, even being used in the movie Gettysburg. Now, the myth is, or the fact is, no one will ever know what Lee said to Jeb Stewart because. Nobody else was there. <laughs> Only the two of them. And neither one left an account of what was said. So there is no myth, there is no reality. But I ask you to consider this for a moment. At the time Stuart enters Lee's tent, on the afternoon of July 2nd, 1863, near Gettysburg, the Army of the Potomac is on the ropes. And Lee is about to deliver what may be the coup de grace. Wasn't Stewart's arrival all that Lee could have wished for? Isn't it possible that Lee did raise his arms to give Stewart a big hug and say, well, General Stewart, you are here at last. What more could Lee have asked for on the afternoon of July 2nd than to have Stewart show up? But again, no one will know the answer to this myth because it died with Lee and Stewart. The Tall Tale. Braxton Bragg was and remains an easy target. The most ridiculing story of him allegedly occurred prior to the Mexican War when First Lieutenant Bragg was stationed at a post of several companies and found himself acting both as a company commander and as post quartermaster and commissary. Now, having looked into his record, this would have occurred occurred, at Fort Moultrie, South Carolina, the only place it ever could have happened. And it didn't. But here we go. Quote, As commander of the company, he made a requisition upon the quartermaster himself for something he wanted. As quartermaster, he declined to fill the requisition (laughs) and endorsed on the back of it his reasons for so doing. As company commander, he responded to this, urging that his requisition called for nothing but what he was entitled to and that it was the duty of the quartermaster to fill it. As quartermaster, he still persisted that he was right. In this condition of affairs, Bragg referred the whole matter to the commanding officer of the post. The latter exclaimed, My God, Mr. Bragg, you have quarreled with every officer in the army, and now you're quarreling with yourself. A wonderful story. But the source comes from the personal memoirs of U.S. Grant, published in 1885. The story was undisputed until 2011, when Samuel Martin begins his biography, or began his biography of Bragg with this story, and concludes, quote, Grant's humorous tale is obviously false. And it is false. It never happened. Circumstances never existed. Mm-hmm. Part of the historian's job is to give their best guess in the absence of definitive evidence and make it clear to the reader that it is only their opinion. But so we have something akin to Lee and Stewart. On the afternoon of July 2nd, when nobody knows what happened. So we have something else here. There's no proof. Okay. It is not unusual for an historian who's left in this sort of position, who gives his best guess, to be challenged. And he he should be challenged. Here we have Alexander Gardner's home of a rebel, sharpshooter, One of the most famous photographs taken during the Civil War. Now, in 1961, and you all know this myth, but you don't, in 1961, Frederick Ray of Civil War Times Magazine compared several of Gardner's images taken of the dead soldiers at Gettysburg to demonstrate that the body of the sharpshooter, which is above, was also photographed at a second location, which is the one below. Same body, two different locations, no doubt about it. This is 1961, all he said was the same body's photographed in two different places. 1975, William Frazanito expands upon Ray's discovery in Gettysburg, A Journey in Time, to state that Ray had claimed in 1961 that Gardner and his two assistants moved the body up the hill to create a better composition using the boulders and rock wall in Devil's Den. Twenty years later, Frazanito changes his story in early photography at Gettysburg. He acknowledges that Ray never claimed that the body had been moved up the hill and admitted that he couldn't prove which way the body had been moved. Too late. Too late. Back then, the national government still moved. Not like today, but it still moved back then, even in a snail's face. And the National Park Service accepted Frasnito's original claimed that the body had been moved down the hill. And so, the sharpshooter photograph was labeled a fake. And it continues to be labeled a fake. In an article published in 1998, James Groves claimed that the stage shot was of the body down the hill, not by the wall. Groves, unlike Frazanito, gives an eyewitness account that a sharpshooter being found at the wall he also gives two reasons why Gardner would have moved the body down the hill. Now, though for different reasons, I agree with Groves that the sharpshooter image is the real one. Now, my evidence for this is the mangled leg, and I could pull a bit Romney on you and offer you 10 grand for every man who can tilt his pelvis to the right and make his foot go more than 90 degrees to the left, but some of you may be yoga experts something and I'd I'd lose. But in any case, a normal man, and and an emphasis on the man here, because women can do this, but men cannot. A man cannot put his body in this position. So if you notice, the pelvis is tilted to his right, but the foot is all the way out to the left. A man cannot turn his foot more than 90 degrees from his pelvis. Now, according to Dr. Edgardo Rodriguez, who specializes in complex trauma to the lower extremity and is the director of the Deformity Correction Center at St. Anthony Hospital and a staff member of the Department of Surgery at St. Joseph Hospital here in Chicago, there are only two possibilities to explain the position of the leg, the right leg on this individual. tibial fracture or knee disarticulation dislocation. Now, nothing visible on the pants leg, and there are five other shots of this image, of this body, indicate that a projectile caused the injury to his leg. Nor could the injury to his leg have been sustained by being blown onto his back by the concussion from an artillery explosion. Now, for all the controversy surrounding these six photographs, there are two things that are certain. The subject was killed. And his right laying leg, leg excuse me, sustained one of two possible injuries. Also, there are no external wounds visible in any of the six photographs. And the concussion, or no, I'm sorry, nor could a concussion, nor a fatal shot in the back, have caused his leg injury. I submit to you that the concussion that killed him at the wall also caused at least one large stone to fall off the wall and onto his lower right leg, breaking his lower right leg. Now, and therefore, in following that, while the photographer set up their camera, their assistant removed the stone. The sharpshooter's death on July the 3rd at the stone wall was as real as his death. Now, I bet there are two or three of you out there who still doubt me. Well, again, we only have the photographs to go by. The historian has to make his best guess. But for those who still doubt me, consider this. There are no photographs of the body in a third location. And no other photographer or artist, even though they were in the area, captured the image of the body at the stone wall. So they didn't capture the stone wall, they didn't capture it anywhere else. The body's only. Photographed in two locations. If Gardner had staged the shot at the stone wall, would he have left the body there for his competitors to make use of? I submit to you that he would not have. And if the body is only photographed in two locations, because it was only viewed in two locations. At the wall where it started, and down the hill, where Gardner moved it to keep its competitors from benefiting from the image. But again, we only have the six photographs to go by. Now, much has been written about the Civil War being fought by commanders who were less than crazy, more than stupid, because of the tactics they used in light of the rifle. Muscle. Now, few historians have realized what Jefferson Davis did in 1855. It was not the rifle barrel that made the difference in the weaponry. It was the mini ball. Smooth bore shoulder weapons had an effective range of 50 yards. Just barely the width of this room, length of this room. Rifles prior to 1855 had an effective range of 200 yards. But in 1861, Springfield rifles, using the miniball, was accurate at 400 yards and could kill at 1,000 yards. Almost as important, it was faster to reload. Now, foremost among the historians who understood the weapons and the, and the, the both the rifling, barrel, and the, the miniball was Grady McWinning and Perry Jameson. In 1982, they published a book called Attack and Die. The title says it all. Mass assaults by infantry were likely to be both costly and unsuccessful because of the increased range of the defender's weapon. Two historians, however, argue that the tactics used by Civil War generals were not outdated. Think about that. They were not outdated because of how these longer-range weapons were actually used. British military thinker Paddy Griffith was the first to reach this conclusion, but Americans dismissed him out of hand. He was only a Brit. (laughs) The second and only American historian to really look at this was Earl Hess. He published The Rifle Musket in Civil War Combat, Reality and Myth, appropriate subtitle, in 2008. Hess argued the rifle's potential to alter the outcome of battle was nullified by a variety of reasons. Possibly the most significant of, of the reasons that Hess gave was that the defenders were seldom ordered to open fire before the enemy was within 200 yards. didn't matter if you could shoot a mile, if you were ordered not to fire until they were within 200 yards. And there was a good reason for having your men withhold their fire. One thing Hess missions that historians seldom consider is how many rounds a soldier could carry into battle. 40 to 60. And how many of those could be fired before the gunpowder fouled the rifle? Approximately 20 for the Confederate, maybe 40 for the Union soldier if he had a Williams cleaner bullet. Clinging a fouled rifle required at least partial dismantling of the weapon. And it was easier to do with water. And what soldier wanted to be caught with a useless rifle when the enemy attacked? Now, this triumvirate constitutes the circumstantial evidence for two widely popular myths. These guys are really guilty. Not for what they did or for what they didn't do, but for how they are remembered by all of us. Now, Albert Castell referred to the Trans-Mississippi as, quote, the junkyard of the Confederate Army, where those found wanting in the East were sent to limit the harm they could do. Even Nevin's Freeman recipients can be fooled some of the time. 1998 recipient William C. Davis altered slightly this dumping ground theme when he wrote that, quote, in the summer of 1862, President Jefferson Davis began a war-long policy of sending discredited or incompetent generals there to command or using it to shell personal favorites who had become too controversial to keep in the East. Now, tied to this opinion of the trans mississippi as a dumbing ground is the notion best expressed by the 2009 recipient of the Niven Freeman Award, Craig Simons. Quote, When Robert E. Lee took over the command of the army of, in Virginia, he measured his subordinates by a simple standard. Success. When a particular officer proved himself in combat, Lee promoted him. When he did not, Lee did not demote him. Instead, he contrived to have him sent to another theater, generally to the West. Without saying so, Lee used the West, or actually any theater outside of Virginia, as a dumping ground for officers he did not want around him anymore. Close quote. So just to reiterate here, Simon is saying Lee used any place outside of Virginia as a dumping ground when he wanted to get rid of somebody. Now, the first of the few Huey Dewey, Louis we have Magruder. a special, oh, a special interest, a uh, um, Another never one winner wrote an essay on him for me, Bob uh, Girardi. Now, Magruder was ordered to the Trans-Mississippi in May 1862 before Lee ever took command of the Army of Northern Virginia. Believing it to be unfair to order Magruder off to the Trans-Mississippi as Baclodd would approached Richmond, his transfer was delayed. He was charged with drunkenness during the Seven Days Battles, and because of that, he was required to remain in Richmond in basic court of inquiry. Consequently, his departure for the Trans-Mississippi was further delayed. It had nothing to do with Lee. It had nothing to do with his performance during the Seven Days Battle. There's Huey. Here comes Dewey. During May and June of 1862, while Magruder remained in Virginia. Major General Hyman, a mentioned earlier, commanded the Trans-Mississippi north of the Red River. While he was there in command, he alienated every politician in Arkansas. So much so that Davis had to promise to relieve him of command. And Davis wasn't easy to push in it into anything. I'm sure many of you know. When Magruder could not take over the Trans-Mississippi in July, Davis sent the only available officer who outranked Heinemann. You can't send a subordinate to the You've got to have somebody with seniority. Only one available. Theophilus Holmes. Lee had nothing to do with Holmes' departure. Moreover, Holmes' departure would lead to D.H. Hill being transferred from Lee's command to replace Holmes as commanding officer in North Carolina. Lee wasn't happy about losing Hill, contrary to what You might have read in a magazine article recently. But nonetheless, Davis felt that North Carolina needed an officer in charge who had some ties to North Carolina. So Hill was removed from Lee's army. We come to Louis. (laughs) Upon taking over the army, Lee wanted to promote Richard Anderson to Major General, even before the Seven Days Battles around Richmond started. To make an opening for... Anderson Lee ordered or asked Davis, not sure they didn't order, asked Davis very politely if he would send Benjamin UG to South Carolina to replace Pemberton. Pemberton had become unpopular and had to be replaced. This was an opportunity. Lee could, Lee could like, get rid of somebody. It wasn't so much he had anything against UG, he just wanted Anderson promoted. Davis didn't fall for it. Eventually, after the seven days battle, Longstreet would tell a lot of lies about Ulysses, and they would be believed. So much so that Ulysses would end up being transferred to the Texas coast, where his abilities as an ordnance officer proved very helpful to the Confederate Army. Once he was transferred, Anderson got promoted his division, and as it turns out, P.G.T. Beauregard gets transferred to South Carolina. But there's somebody still has to replace the unpopular Pemberton in South Carolina. Now. Again, going back to the biggie here, the Trans-Mississippi Junkyard, where Davis and Lee both sit people too. Seventy-three Confederate generals served in the Trans-Mississippi. Now, some of these things you can question about my interpretation of the photograph that's stonewall over the Waller, but these, these are hard facts. Seventy-three Confederate generals served in the Trans-Mississippi. Thirty-eight of these only served west of the Mississippi. So they didn't get transferred to the junkyard. Four were transferred from the junkyard east of the Mississippi River, so they didn't count either. Seven who were sent to the Trans-Mississippi were sent back. So they don't qualify. Thirteen were either requested by the commanding officer of the Trans-Mississippi, or asked to be transferred there, or obtained a very questionable leave under falsifying medical documents in order to get to go home. Three were sent there because of disabling wounds. It was their home state. They could not they were no longer fit for field duty, so they're sent home, which happened to be independent Mississippi. One was sent there because his brigade was trans oh, I'm sorry, was captured at Vicksburg and paroled west of the river. Consequently, 90% vote I hit something, didn't I? What happened here? Hmm? It's cutting off the right edge. Oh, it's cutting off the right edge of my numbers? Here. Oh, gosh. Bruce, what do we do here? All right, well, you should have had all these numbers. But in any case, 90% of them, I apologize, this didn't even happen last
1: night.
0: 90% of the generals, Confederate generals, who served in the Trans-Mississippi, no way, shape, or form could it be considered to have been dumped there. Now, that leaves seven. I'll go back. Spiro and Rob with the police evidence here. We got, we got seven possibilities now. The junkyard's getting cleaned up. And out of these seven, we have John G. Walker, who was transferred from the Army of Northern Virginia over Lee's written request to Davis not to transfer him. So he wasn't dumped there. Another was William Preston that Bragg had wound up getting rid of in, in Tennessee and he in the end Preston ends up in the Trans-Mississippi, not because of any fault of Preston's performance as a general, but because of his difference with Rice and Bragg. Now we're down to five. Now I submit to you, and sometimes the audience have to have to give their own opinion, that even if they were the five worst generals in the Confederacy out of four hundred and twenty-eight, you could not claim that the Trans-Mississippi was a dumping ground. And they were not the five worst. Simply started in the Trans-Mississippi. And Leonidas Polk and John Floyd and Lucius Northam never got there. I believe it to each of you individually to pick out the fifth worst. But even if you pick one that happened to be transferred from east of the river to west of the river who stayed there, one would not make it a dummy ground. A total myth. Now, part of this myth, again, is. Robert E. Lee and how he dealt with his generals, and how easy was it for him to work, manipulate Jefferson Davis, to get rid of people? He was no Lee was no different than any other senior commander. Bragg got rid of several generals, I mentioned Preston, for a variety of reasons, and wasn't, and, and certainly competence was at the top of the list. Kirby Smith got rid of Richard Taylor, his best subordinate. And not even Lee, and this is important to remember, not even Lee always got what he wanted. I've already mentioned D.H. Hill and John G. Walker. Lee would have preferred to have kept Richard Taylor and Wade Hampton, but he knew better than to ask Davis to allow him to retain him. And Davis forced Lee, forced Lee to relieve Jubal early in March of 1865. Again, something Lee did not want to do. Lastly, keep it in mind, Craig Simons. Lee also used Virginia as a dumping ground. He got rid of Richard Ewell by transferring him to the Department of Richmond. Oh, gosh. Bear with me, folks. It only gets better we have Bruce. (laughs) Now, there's a story behind each of these myths I'm presenting tonight, but the most unusual for me concerns the next one that I'll talk about. And while working on one project, it's very common for a historian to get caught up in something else that leads them into an unexpected direction. And in this case, the cause was Bruce Allardyce. <laughs> now, for years, I would wanted to do a book with Bruce, and we kicked around several topics which he promptly kicked back at me. But finally, my desire came to fruition with the publication of Kentuckians in Gray. Now, many of the principal characters in this book served in the Confederate Cavalry in the Western Theater. And when the book was finished, I was left with a lot of unanswered questions as to how the, all the shifts and the commands of the Confederate Cavalry in the Western Theater. So I went up researching the subject further, and that led to a paper I presented at a conference on Bragg and his cavalry. And it also led to my discovery of the truth regarding a monumental myth of the Civil War. The most legendary of all Bragg tales is the one regarding his relationship with Forrest. Now, these are the facts, and I'm going to throw them out here because most people don't know, have no concept of the facts, they only know the myth. The fact is, in June of 1862, Beauregard persuaded Colonel Forrest to give up his regiment and go to East Tennessee, to take command of the Confederate cavalry there in the vicinity of Chattanooga and hinted to Forrest that if he would do so, he would become a a brigadier general. Forrest agreed. Bragg had nothing to do with it. By the time Forrest was promoted to brigadier general in July, Bragg had replaced Beauregard and himself was moving toward Chattanooga. And there Bragg welcomed Forrest as his cavalry commander. Commander of all his cavalry. In September, during the invasion of Kentucky, Forrest's horse falls on him. Forrest, his horse falls, and Donovan falls, but then rolls over on top of Forrest. Dislocates his right shoulder. Forrest is in a lot of pain. He cannot ride a horse. He's confined to a buggy, and the buggy can't keep up with Forrest's cavalry troopers. Bragg orders him to Murfreesboro, Tennessee. There he is to recruit additional regiments and harass the Union Garrison near Nashville. There is no animosity between the two men. Bragg's transfer of force allows Forrest to save face. Forrest didn't have to admit that, hey, I'm sorry, I'm injured, I can't keep up. No animosity. Now, in November of 1862, Bragg reorganizes what becomes the Army of Tennessee. He places Joseph Wheeler in command of all his cavalry, except for two brigades, those of Forrest and John Hunt Morgan. Now this was done for two reasons. One was these two gentlemen both outranked Wheeler, so they couldn't be put under him. But the second was that both Force and Wheeler, I'm sorry, Force and Morgan, had demonstrated a greater ability to conduct raids behind enemy lines than to gather and correct intelligence. And it should be remembered by all that the job of the Civil War cavalryman was to gather intelligence. It was not to do any that was the primary job which Stewart was undoubtedly the best on both sides. Again, this left Forrest, independent command, his brigade, he go riding off wherever he wanted, no reason for any animosity between him and Braxton Bray. Now in February of 1863, Forrest is on the Wheeler borrows 800 of his cavalrymen. Forrest finds out about it, rejoins the command as they are about to attack over Tennessee. Forrest objects to Wheeler's plan, but Wheeler is now Major General and tells Forrest where he can go and orders the attack, and it is an abysmal disaster. Forrest now tells Bragg he will no longer serve under Wheeler. Now, the Bragg of myth would have had Forrest court-martialed, but the fact was Bragg honored Forrest's request. He transferred Forrest and his brigade, which is important to remember, to West Tennessee to join the Cavalry Corps of Major General Earl Van Dorn. Now we come to Earl Van Dorn. I'm a nephew. Covers years uh, Van Dorn was assassinated by a jealous husband in May of 1863. I don't know what makes husbands jealous, but in any case, right, Tory. No, don't make husbands jealous. Bragg, when Van Dorn is assassinated, Bragg offers the half force promoted to Major General and Forrest declines but Bragg gave him Van Dorn's cavalry corps anyway in late September of 1863 on while on leave Forrest learns that Bragg had assigned some of his men to Wheeler once again and Forrest goes to Bragg and protests and Bragg assures him that once you come back from your leave you get the men back and so Forrest acquiesced and goes on leave One of the, going with the night's nice quiz one of the things he does on that leave is riding the train with Jefferson Davis in Montgomery, Alabama, so the two had met. Nevertheless, there is again there is absolutely no animosity between the two men. We come to an incident that supposedly occurs in late September between late September and mid October of 1863. And this and the story starts with Forrest goes to Missionary Ridge, storms past the guard, and enters Braxton Bragg's headquarters tent. And he says, and I apologize for reading so much of this, but we're almost through. I am not here to pass civilities or compliments with you, but on other business. You commenced your cowardly and contemptible persecution of me soon after the Battle of Shiloh, and you have kept it up ever since. You robbed me of my command in Kentucky and gave it to one of your favorites. In a spirit of revenge and spite, because I would not fawn upon you as others did, You drove me into West Tennessee in the winter of 1862. You did it to ruin my career. When in spite of all this, I returned from my command. You began again your work of spite and persecution. Taking advantage of your position as the commanding general, in order to further humiliate me, you have taken these brave men from me. I have stood your meanness as long as I intend to. You have played the part of a damn scoundrel and are a coward. And if you were any part of a man, I would slap your jaws and force you to resent it. I say to you that if you ever again try to interfere with me or cross my path, it will be at the peril of your life. Close quote. Boris then walks out. And Bragg does nothing. Now this account appears every modern biography of Nathan bedford Forrest. And it appears in Martin's 2011 biography of Braxton Bragg as fact. Now, the evidence proves otherwise. And for those of you who don't like Braxton Bragg, tough. There's a reason I started the Bragg Fan Club in 1975 and that we're swelling to three members in 2013. (laughs) The first to question the veracity of this story was Judith Halleck who completed McQuinney's biography of Bragg in 1991. Jim Ogden, many of you know, was the the historian at Chickamauga and Chattanooga National Military Park, agreed with Halleck, and so informed David Powell, who spoke here last year, and who published a book in 2010, Failure in the South. Powell is to be commended for not only omitting this story from his text, but for putting it in in an appendix and explaining why he thought it was false. In some respects, this incident between Bragg and Forrest is very similar to Stuart and Lee at Gettysburg. You got a tent, you got two generals. Who said what? Now, between Bragg and Forrest, neither man ever mentioned what happened when they were in this tent during this incident. Nor does it appear in Thomas Jordan and J.P. Pryor's The Campaigns of Lieutenant General N.B. Forrest, published in 1868, which is significant because this was virtually an autobiography by Forrest, and Forrest knew what was in it and could have changed things. The story that I just related to you occurs, or appears first in print in 1899, and it originates with Dr. James Coward. Cowan claims to have followed Forrest into Bragg's tent, making him the only eyewitness and the only one of the three still alive in 1899 when, they, when his tale was first printed. Think about that, 1899, long after the war. Now, historians wishing to repeat a good story had no problem altering the timeline and the doctor's account to make it fit with facts they couldn't alter nonetheless for what actually happened I refer you to Powell's account which concludes perhaps the confrontation unfolded when and as described by Dr. Kalman or perhaps the infamous confrontation was simply a war story spun in old age by a former surgeon as he fondly remembered his revered kinsman and commander Unless additional credible contemporary accounts surface, it is impossible to know with certainty whether this incident really took place. In honor of my police officer friends here tonight, I give you the smoking gun. <laughs> the additional credible contemporary evidence. All right, now we just heard. Supposedly, forced it all this to brag and brag and nothing about it, and this is accepted as the gospel. And more by more than maybe by God, not just Matthew, Mark, and Luke, among Civil War historians and aficionados. On December 8, 1863, between eight and eleven weeks after this supposed encounter, which I we we have to depends on which historian's version of the encounter you read as to when it took place, because they gotta make the timelines here we between six and I'm sorry, eight and eleven weeks later, December 8, 1863. Forrest has been transferred to West Tennessee. He's no longer under Bragg's command. Nevertheless, the man who supposedly just said all this tirade to Bragg a lot more, that I omitted, writes Bragg a long letter. Now he obviously he should be mad at Bragg. He's not under Bragg's command. He's got no reason to write Bragg, but he writes Bragg a long letter. He concludes that letter and I quote I am confident that I shall have in a short time 8,000 effective men in the field besides some thousand belonging to infantry command all of whom will be sent back at the earliest possible moment. I am not only willing but desirous General of rendering the country all the service possible in the occupancy and defense of West Tennessee. Also to get out from there all the supplies I can for the assistance of your army if you can aid me in the services of a general officer or the procurement of arms I shall be thankful and in turn use every exertion to send you the absentees from your ranks and supplies etc. for your troops I am general very respectively your obedient servant N.B. Forrest brigadier general commanding. Now, did the guy who wrote this letter totally on his own no reason to do so have this encounter with Bragg eight to seven weeks earlier? No way. No way. More importantly, Forrest at the time he wrote the letter was unaware that four days earlier he had been promoted to major general. Largely because Bragg had been pushing for his promotion. Bragg had pushed for his promotion ever since Van Dorn had died, even though Forrest had declined to accept it. There was never any animosity between the two men, which makes for a lot of Civil War history that needs to be reconsidered. Now, we're almost done. Admittedly, these myths vary in significance regarding our understanding of the Civil War today. But undoubtedly, even to my 15-year-old nephew, he's going to get to the point in the next one, the most important of all these myths relates to the number of fatalities. When you're dead, you're dead. Some of you may recall, and I hope one of you will because he's here tonight, my last presentation in this group, which was in January of 2011, and I spoke about Slandered heroes, deserters who didn't. During the Q and A that night, Kurt Carlson asked me what, at the time, I considered to be the second best question I ever received. And since I can't remember the first, now he's been promoted. Sorry. Kurt asked me how one might go about it, proving my point, which was that a that thousands of Civil War soldiers who had officially were officially. As having deserted, actually died in service, whether on the battlefield or in the hospital. My answer that night was that you could start by totaling up the differences between the soldiers reported missing on one side and the number of that side captured, reported captured by the enemy on the other. But there was another way. A guy named J. David Hacker. Who is a demographic and social historian who knows virtually nothing about the Civil War? We've corresponded since then. Published an article in December of 2011, 11 months after my speech here. It was called "A Census-Based Count of the Civil War Dead." Now he compared the 1860 and the 1870 censuses, and there's a lot of people who aren't there in 1870 who was there in 1860. Now, the official accepted figure of Civil War dead was 620,000. By hackers' figures, which are very sound and accepted by Civil War military stories today, there were at least 752,000. Like 20% more. At least, and he estimates that it could be as high as 851,000 way more than 620 thousand more eight hundred. that's more than I thought I, I said I thought there would be seven hundred fifty thousand, and that's his 752 thousand is his mid, mid-range number but he couldn't explain how such an error could exist because he was unaware of deserters who didn't and that's where they went more than a hundred thousand civil war soldiers written off as having deserted actually died. And the census data, I, I looked at it from cutting the trees. He looked at it from the size of the forest. But the proof exists and has been accepted. Way more soldiers died in the Civil War, than both North and South and black and white, than has here before been tested. Now we come to the end of the show. Of all T. Harry Williams' lectures, his most popular and his favorite was the final lecture for the Civil War class. I know why one of our wedding guests is not here this evening because we're going to talk about our hero, Joshua Chamberlain. Some may think William T. Sherman was the biggest liar among Union Jews, (laughs) but I submit to you that it was Joshua Chamberlain. Harry could read from his 1915 account of the passing of the armies and make students cry. Uh, I saw it happen on more than one occasion. He makes students cry. Now, some of Chamberlain's account is true regarding the surrender of the Army in Northern Virginia, but there was no exchange of salutes. The shifting of arms that John Brown Gordon heard did take place, but it was actually the Yankees being called to attention, which meant they had to keep their mouths shut and so when the Confederates walked by and looked them in the eye and said what they really wanted to, the Yankees could say nothing. That was their salute. As no salute was made to the Confederates by the Yankees, Gordon did not order his men to make any re- salute in re- return. Now, and the interesting thing, is, Twist to this story here because we hate to have Yankees and rebels working together on some sort of undercover collusion but it, but it happens in this case a similar version of Chamberlain's Passion of the Armies had been published earlier in 1901 in a Boston newspaper and in 1901 you know he yeah, had about 30, 35,000 people at the ceremony at Appomattox that day so were, boy, there were more than a few alive and several of the Union survivors called Chamberlain on his account Two years later, in 1903, Gordon publishes reminiscences of the Civil War. He wrote, and I quote, one of the knightliest soldiers of the Federal Army, General Joshua L. Chamberlain of Maine, who afterwards served with distinction as governor of his state, called his troops into line, and as my men marched in front of them, the veterans in blue gave a soldierly salute to those those vanquished heroes a token of respect from Americans to Americans, a final and fitting tribute from northern to southern chivalry. General Chamberlain describes this incident in the following words, close quote, and Gordon goes on to quote Chamberlain's account. Gordon is not going to agree with it. He just quotes Chamberlain. Now, Chamberlain's motives for perpetuating this story can be debated. For Gordon, it was the... Give closure to the next generation. He knew that the men who marched with him, behind him at Appomattox knew better. But their children, or the children of those who had died before Appomattox, might better accept the reunification. Now, when visiting Appomattox with the civil Chicago Civil War Roundtable a few years ago, I was shocked to learn from Will Green. For those of you who don't recognize him—he's the one with the least hair. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: that this exchange of salutes at Appomattox Square House never took place. The first and only historian ever to tell the truth was William Marvel uh-huh. in Lee's Last Retreat, published in 2002. Now this is 11 years ago. The only historian. Nevertheless. Even though they know the story is false, the National Park Service still refuses to tell the truth after 148 years. Now, it's worth noting that the painting they used to illustrate, Ray was there that day, as was Mary Abreu, shame on her for hiding tonight, it's worth noting that the painting they used to illustrate, the surrender, does not show the Union soldiers that carry arms, that is, giving the salute If the public is deemed unable to handle this, the truth about Appomattox Courthouse, 148 years after the fact, what else is the government withholding?
1: (laughs) Thank you very much.
2: (laughs) Believe it or not, E.T. disappeared in Milwaukee last night. Great. Uh, we, we started a little late, so we uh, are ending a little late. But we still should have questions. I know we have. <laughs> but. Uh, I'll give you another great bet uh, that Henry Hees was the only man or the only officer, the lead called by his given name.
0: I doubt that's true, but I can't. Um, we couldn't give you the proof to argue with you. Uh, originated with uh, Freeman himself, and leads of tenants
2: and the source is uh, Henry Heath himself.
0: Henry Heath, by the, by the time... The oh, you're saying uh, Henry Heath was the first one? Oh, no. Oh, I didn't think his, so. His, his army name was Hal. And I almost want to say Lee called him Harry. No, but well, if he called him anything, call him Hal. Okay. okay. Yes, sir.
2: Why, why didn't uh force
0: want to accept that? I don't know. That I, that I can't address. He. I, Uh, he he, he was his own man and and, and another thing to consider for those of you who want us to continue to believe this happened the Nathan Bedford forces you can demonstrate shot his own men shot his own subordinate officer I mean the unquestionable facts here. if you think of that guy and you think he's going to go into Braxton Braxton Bragg's tent give give like a two minute tirade and not pull out his sword or his gun and kill Bragg and if you don't buy into that part, look at the other side. Brad, who court martialed a soldier, allegedly, uh, technically it was true for shooting a chicken, uh, you're, uh, and by court martial I mean hanged, uh, he's going to let Force get away with this? Force, like even earlier in the war, when Force said, I'm not going to serve Wheeler. You know, no, no, it, 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 it is just beyond belief. And in and and that but so it, uh, but but force was not Forrest, now here, here's an interesting thing right before and it's all, I'll say this in, in answer to this question Forrest never sought promotion and Forrest actually in August of 1863 the biggest employee he ever had against Brag was in, in August 63 this is about, you know Bragg's about to lose Chad and the things are looking for him Forrest wants to take 400 men and a couple of can and go over to West Tennessee on the Mississippi River and shoot at Union gunboats and, and, and cut off the Union supply line and Bragg says, I can't spare it. So after Chickamauga, this is going to be approved and Davis and Bragg both approve it and, and Forrest gets what he wants and he goes over there. And he gets, and, he not, and then he's also promoted to Major General. He's also going to be promoted to Lieutenant General because uh, he's going to have to take over the department. It's not because of his cavalry command. Uh, but, but Bragg Force Forrest was not looked down upon by the powers that be. In this, in, in, you know, it, it, and it's also kind of, you know, I never thought about the inside of it, but maybe Force was a little humble. I mean, he, did, he didn't go after, he, you know, he, there was, he believed that he was like uh, repressed, if you will, or suppressed by people like Davis and Bragg, but he wasn't. There was a question back here somewhere. Yes, sir. Uh,
2: is it true that Chamberlain uh, stopped the lynching when he was governor of Maine? almost
0: single-handedly. Is that a true story? I, I, I couldn't answer that. I'm okay. sorry.
2: Larry? Oh, yes. I'd like to thank you for answering the question. And I'm not going to ask you another one because I don't want to wait that
0: long for another answer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad there was somebody out there working on the problem who came up with a different answer. <laughs> because it's a, that is a very important question. I mean, many of the things I talked about tonight, like the minor things, you know, with the head bars and and even the photo. I mean, who cares if the guy was photographed the wall or down the hill? But if you raise the number of dead from 620,000 to 851,000, you're talking a big change in American history. And it's. And I was at a convention in St. Louis last week. And this, this. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, y'all. We'll just say Civil War bus. I mean, can you imagine some demographic, social historian? telling a bunch of Civil War military stories that, you know, there's a lot more dead bodies out there that you all haven't counted up yet, and being believed. This, The, the guy's account was, was written up in the New York Times newspaper, and he's got Civil War historians on the edge of their seats, and, and, and there's a lot that has to be uh, rethought. But but, but, with Kurt, I'm serious about that. That was a very good question, and I'm very delighted that somebody came up with an answer. That uh, supported my arguments from before. That other uh, yes, sir.
2: Let's lay this to rest once and for all. Is it? I take it that it's a civil war myth that uh, General Forrest commented. I take it that it's a civil war myth that General Forrest uh, said that something about to get there first was for the most. Is. <laughs>
0: The question is, did Forrest ever say the, the great strategy of a war, or however you want to put it, would be to get there the firstest with the mostest? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a good, it is a good question for several accounts. He did not have the uh, documentable formal education, but he was not as the, the ignorant country bumpkin as he sometimes made out I doubt he phrased it that way, but I'm sure he had that strategy. Yes, sir? Um, where do you think Grant got the story about Bragg? When you think about it, it actually makes no sense. Why would you make trouble for yourself? Where do you think Grant got it? Well, gosh, now we've got to talk about lying Yankee generals here. <laughs> uh, you know, there is no, you know, part of it is, honest to God, part of it is, I don't think there's any easier target to come out of the Civil War than Braxton Bragg. And when Grant wrote that, almost everybody's dead, and that because we're talking about something that would have happened uh, in about 1841, we're not talking. That's not a Civil War story. So we're now 47 years later. So there aren't many witnesses around to challenge it. And as I tell people that I've I've talked to about this study, well, you know those post records exist in the National Archives. You could find them if you wanted to. And literally today, because of a question I was asked last night, and I did a little research on it. There is only one place that Bragg served as a first lieutenant where he could have commanded both a company and been post-quartermaster and commissary, and that was Fort Moultrie, South Carolina. So it would be easy to document or disprove. I don't know that he would ever served as either there at, at, at Fort Gilmore, but that's the only place where he could have served as both, at, uh, at being at a post where there was also a superior officer over him as company commander.
2: We have one more question. Yes. So while that story may have been apocryphal, is the contention that Bragg was an argumentative type who would argue with everybody is the conclusion still right, to consideration of the, of the historical evidence?
0: Well, see now, there's an excellent question because Grady McWinney bought into it about the pre-war confrontation, as did his more recent biographer Martin. Uh, but if you take away the strong, the the, the 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 most predominant pre-war story and the most dominant war story, maybe Bragg wasn't so bad. Scary thought, I know.
1: Scary thought. So without those two stories, they're
0: really Well oh, no 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 they're, they're, no he had he had problems with other people. As I mentioned, he had problems with William Preston. The real mystery, you know, if you want to I mean there needs to be a new there needs I only say a new, there needs to be a history of the Confederate High Command and the Western Theater written. But but whoever writes that has to answer one question, in my opinion, first, and that is Why did William J. Hardy turn against Bragg? Now, there's a lot the Pope part I've researched I mean, I've researched all of it and I can prove why one person's on one side and one's on the other but the key player is William J. Hardy because Hardy was a West Point graduate Hardy had a high reputation in the old army Hardy Hardy had clout with those people who would not follow Bishop Pope anywhere uh, Bishop Polk was much more popular, but but Hardy had to claw out within Bragg's officer corps, and some for whatever reason between July and in November of 1862, Hardy may be the spearhead of the movement. Pope might just Pope might not even be in charge of it. He might just be Hardy's mouthpiece, but somewhere between July and in November of '62 party turns against Bragg and it's going to destroy the Army of Tennessee? That's not a very good answer, but I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. And gonna, I guess we'll end it. Is, well, that's a good Mr. way to President end it because I think
2: that's a, that'll be a great subject for your next talk. <laughs> uh, if I find the answer to that, I'll
0: be back. Well, all right. And Kirk will be here to ask me a question. Yeah. Let's hold our
2: applause before we, uh, we need to uh, finish up here and... You have, Larry uh, this fine uh, slip covered volume, volumes of uh, The Gateway to History by Nevins and The South to Posterity, authored by Douglas South of Brittany, appropriately leather bound, blue and gray. Uh, they are uh, it's, it's dedicated to Larry. If you'll open one volume up there, you'll right. notice that. Uh, these have been inscribed to you for distinguished service in the American Conflict of 1861. If Freeman signed it, we may have the answer to the, the <laughs> brag Party controversy in here. Well, they, did, they didn't sign it, but uh, these are dedicated. Oh, to yes, they Thank so you so much. We, uh, we, uh, we give these to you with great pride, and also, uh-huh. uh, as is our custom, we will be making a donation on your behalf of Pamplin Park. We discussed this earlier, uh, one of which I will be glad to match. Because of your great service here tonight uh, to us, uh, uh, very deserved winner. You, you obviously bring lots and lots of knowledge, but also lots and lots of heart. And I, I appreciate your being here tonight, receiving this award. This is the best night I'll probably have as president. Thank you. <laughs>
0: the speech was in my presentation, which made this last little longer I just say one well, thing: I am truly honored uh, to receive this award. I never thought I would be the recipient, never ever. So, yeah, I thank you all.